You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, a podcast focused on getting you up to speed on issues in cybersecurity with engaging experts and stimulating conversations. To learn more, visit us at intel.com slash cybersecurity inside. What are the components within that supply chain? And can we verify that those are actually the right components? You can get the benefits of AI without having to share too much of your own personal data. Holy cow, there's so many places this could go wrong now, right? And, and how do I secure all of this? The following conversation was recorded live from the green room of Intel's ISEC Con 2021, otherwise known as Intel Security Conference. So today, our special guest is Maribel Lopez. Uh, she is founder and principal analyst at Lopez Research, following the latest in technology trends. So welcome back to our podcast, Maribel. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I can't believe it's been about a year. Wow. Yeah, Maribel was our very first podcast guest, and this was back in the day before we did video. So today, what we wanted to do was really talk about some of the trends that have evolved over the last year, and then also get your perspectives from a very high level. What, what are some of the trends that maybe caught you bit by surprise or maybe a little bit bigger than you'd anticipated from when we spoke a year ago? I think when we spoke, one of the things I was really focused on was this move to remote work and the potential for that to open up a lot of security vulnerabilities. Um, people having uh, older hardware that might not have been patched, uh, a lot of phishing. Ransomware was talked about, but it wasn't sort of the thing that was going on right now. And, you know, one of the things that's really changed is we've seen so many attacks on such a wide range of companies and really um, in, in some devastating ways, you know, shutting down gas lines, um, uh, shutting down hospitals during some really intense times. You don't want to have issues with hospitals during COVID. That was just a real negative thing. So uh, really, I think the attack surface shifted a little bit from what I originally thought it would be, where it was um, an attack on individuals that will, would allow you into a company and just really attacking companies that had older infrastructure. Now, how they found them, maybe they just stumbled upon them, but it seemed to be a much different animal in terms of much more directed than I thought it was going to be. You're saying now it is more directed and targeted, whereas before it was more opportunistic? Um, I, I feel like there's definitely more targeting going on than there have been in the past. I also feel like people thought it was a really good opportunity. The malicious actors really thought about it and said, hey, now is a time when there's probably a lot of different places we could find vulnerabilities. So I think they, they were always out there, but it seemed like the level of attacks just got amped in this particular time frame. Yeah, I like to point out to, to folks, when you're a malicious actor, you don't have to necessarily be on the cutting edge of security research. What you can do is wait for vulnerabilities to be found by ethical researchers and to be talked about in you know in universities or or in at, at security events and then count on the fact that people won't update their systems so if you're 
an attacker and you want to attack a company, you can just kind of go to the bookshelf and pull off the vulnerability that you choose to to try to exploit and then just look to see what companies haven't updated their systems and are still vulnerable to that attack. That is so spot on, Tom. Really is. I know we've talked a lot over the last year about kind of the nature of attacks changing and obviously a migration toward attacks on firmware and hardware. But do you think that there's also been like an increase on critical infrastructure or supply chain? It feels like that to me. It feels like the attacks matter more because they affect broader numbers of people in more important ways. One of the things that we're seeing is like, if you built a strategy around it, it's like, what type of company would have to pay? How much would they be willing to pay? And the more pain that is, the more critical that infrastructure is, either in terms of supporting a bunch of people or in some cases, life-threatening, right? These were things where it's like, if you can figure out what the potential vulnerabilities are there, look for them, make that type of attack, you know that your success in getting paid as as a malicious actor is pretty high because it is critical infrastructure. There were some really interesting discussions around the pipeline, for example, it's like, should you have paid? Should you have not paid? And these are hard decisions, but I really felt bad for some of these executives because they were like, hey, we have to get this back up and running. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these matters of if you have an issue and you can't resolve the issue quickly, then you could see why they would have paid. But having seen that, I think that made it even more interesting for more people to go out and say, okay, let's try to find these type of vulnerabilities. I mean, okay, if you if you attack the garden variety user and they get locked out of their machine, how much is that worth? Probably not that much. <laughs> Whereas if you attack a hospital, you attack a transportation system, you attack a pipeline, there's like a whole different level of concern that happens there. The concern element that you mentioned, I think also translates to now government interest and regulations. And you saw a bunch of interest in the U.S., around critical infrastructure and it's sort of protecting it against you know foreign adversaries. But you also saw some of that expanding into even things like supply chain concerns as well. So there's the direct hacking elements of it. And then there are the elements of, well, how much of my infrastructure depends on you know, various forms of technology? And do I need to regulate that more closely? And there's certainly been a discussion of regulation. You know, one of the things I think is interesting is, is that, in my opinion, there were many industries that for a lot of years underinvested in technology that are using a lot of legacy technology, and they've actually opened themselves up to this. And healthcare is a great example of this. Healthcare was very far behind in terms of modernization of IT infrastructure. And I think we're starting to see a change in that. So this was a terrible way to get there. But I, I think that the the first stage, you know, before we even talk about regulation is just for every organization to try to figure out is your IT infrastructure holding you back? And I'm not talking about in an agile digital transformation way. I'm talking about in a it will shut your business down way, which there's two levels of, of concern here. And I think there's now a much healthier recognition of even if we didn't want to go there because 
of competition, because of making more money, because of all the other things that we we as analysts have sp- certainly spoke about in the digital transformation era. Now I think there's a realization that if you have old infrastructure, that infrastructure might not be supported for new software releases, patches and the like, and you are really open to a whole world of hurt. I feel like it's on you as an organization at this point. You can't say you don't know anymore because there have been enough examples to over the past year to say, uh-oh, I should have been looking at this. <laughs> so if you're not looking at it now, um, there there's potential legal actions that could happen out of that, and it's just irresponsible. So I think at this point, we're in a different place in terms of talking about it. We, we might get down to the point where there's regulation of like a minimum security standard for certain types of data and certain types of industries. That would be, to me, regulation just takes so long. Like you're well beyond what needs to happen by the time anything gets approved. So it's probably better for you to just look at, at having people come in and do security audits to figure out where your vulnerabilities are. Think about how old uh, certain infrastructure is. Is it five years old, 10 years old, 20 years old in some cases? Uh, this is a real problem for, for certain organizations. An expensive one too, I have to say. Well, it's getting more and more intimate as well, because I think we're starting to see, we, we talked again, you know, for a decade about IoT. And I think, you know, maybe that was even overhyped just a little bit, how quickly everything would be connected. But we are seeing, you know, Wi-Fi modules added to medical devices that, you know, sometimes reside inside your body. And our critical infrastructure is moving to space, right? So we've now got satellites and things orbiting the earth that we might need to be doing patches of. So it seems to me we've got either extremes on the mini side and the maximum side of even just the ability to update systems in those kinds of conditions. It's not just security, it's also privacy, it's also functional safety or personal safety. And then you're very quickly kind of moving into the ethics space, I think, once you touch on those things. Absolutely. I mean, the, the privacy and ethics and AI. So one of the one of the really interesting pieces of research that's starting to happen for a lot of organizations right now is we've got AI and we've got privacy. And there's some interesting ethical concerns around what AI models will create based on the data they have. So a lot of people are building models and with maybe not the most representative data samples, uh, but there's certainly a lot of concern about the privacy aspects of data. And now there's a lot of regulation around the privacy aspects of the data that you're collecting and how you're building models with them and potentially very huge fines associated with that if you're found in violation of, of privacy. And there's a lot of data loss that we're dealing with right now. And one of the things I think is really interesting is, I don't know how many times um Either of you get a text from a bank that's theoretically your information's compromised or an email of such. Some of the attacks are, are pretty sophisticated looking. It, it could be something that you'd want to look into. But let's just say that I do that and somehow, you know, I, either that or somewhere, some manner, shape or form, someone's losing data. Like T-Mobile just lost a bunch of data from their customers. Uh, We all know about the financial reporting institutions losing a a bunch of data. What happens then is we have to start thinking about like, well, how was that data collected? Was it encrypted? How are we doing AI analytics on it? Should we be looking at things like homomorphic encryption? 
is differential privacy enough as an example, right? Could I still somehow figure out, well, that was probably really Maribel there. Like, is there, is there enough uh, separation in that aggregate data? So I, I think there's a lot of concern right now about how we're going to collect data, how we're going to secure that data, and how we secure that in the context of analyzing that data to create new business models and other things. Part of what you were speaking about there reminds me of a conversation Camille and I had with a guest just recently. And, and I was sharing that, you know, back in when I was in college, my student ID was my social security number. You know, everybody's student ID was their social security number. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, of course, <laughs> you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe that. But as the guest pointed out, well, what could you do with your social security number back then? Sharing that kind of information wasn't as critical. But if you think about that, not from a privacy standpoint, but you think about it from a security standpoint, and the more interconnected things are, and the more that we rely on these new capabilities, like, for example, the fact that maybe all the traffic lights now are all connected to each other, that poses now a very different sort of security angle as well. So, yes, we get the benefits of having smart traffic lights. But now that opens up a potential security exposure that they can create chaos in a city and create gridlock if that infrastructure gets hacked. So it's great on one hand, but from a security perspective, as security professionals, we have to realize now our job is getting bigger and bigger and bigger by the day because of all that interconnectedness that's happening in really about every aspect of our life. Actually, I want to pile onto that really quick because we I, I did a what that means with Claire Vishik, who's a fellow at Intel, and she focuses, one of the things she focuses on is privacy. And the very example she gave of where security and privacy can sometimes even conflict was just what you said, Tom, the sort of traffic light. Consider, it was a hypothetical, she said, right? But consider the concept of traffic lights all linked also to all of the automobiles. And so they may be reading information about your car, where it's going, its plans. However, that then means your privacy has to be preserved also. So it's not the business of the traffic light to link the trajectory of your car with the individual in the car. But in preserving the privacy, you sometimes run into these conflicts. Like if you're encrypting all of the private information within the vehicle, you may not be able to unencrypt it in time, certain information to make sure that the traffic, you know, the traffic lights or signals or whatever can adjust for the safety of the situation. So just as a hypothetical, you know, we're seeing how these things are super, you know, interconnected at this point. No, I agree with that. There's been a lot of discussion about what kinds of data you collect about where individuals are. And that's been another thing that's been at odds with, um, say, government employees, you know, understanding like where your public's work people are at all times. You know, on one hand, you want to be able to know where they are, send them to the right place so they can uh, act on emergency, uh, dig out snowbanks, whatever it needs to be. Uh, On the other hand, there's the, hmm, you know, where everybody is at every waking hour of their day kind of thing. And, and some people didn't like that. So we're, we're also running up against the concepts of how the workers feel about it. And in addition to the security of that. So there's multiple layers that we're trying to unpack on this. Yeah. Well, I wonder if we could maybe extend to another big topic that we've all read about. We've talked about, a lot of us have talked about it, 
and that's artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. What do you see from AI? What's hype? What's reality? The greatness and the sorrow of AI is AI can take a lot of data and it can find a lot of patterns and insights very quickly. And I think a lot of malicious actors that are sophisticated malicious actors, as opposed to the group we were talking about earlier, are in fact using that to try to figure out, are there specific types of vulnerabilities we should go after, or specific categories of equipment? You know, you can send AI out trolling to look for things that have a certain characteristic to them in the net. So I, I think that it's, it's a constant battle between the good guys and the bad guys, and both of them have AI tools. So I think that AI has been very good for a lot of the security solutions we have now. Almost every security solution I can think of is, is AI-driven in some manner, shape, or form. If it's not an actual physical hardware thing, if it's a software thing, it has an AI component to it. But that is also being used on the other side. So if, if you ask me where we are and, and we put it into, say, like a baseball analogy, we're probably in the fourth inning of what's going on with AI. <laughs> we have a lot of ways that it could still be improved. You know, you still have to go uh, and look through models to make sure they're doing what you thought they would do and that they're learning the way you think they should be learning. So that's not a whole autopilot thing at this point. So that means that there's still a lot of human in the AI loop. But, you know, AI is definitely helping malicious actors do their jobs better. And therefore, you need AI on the other side, I guess, is what I would say. The counterpoint to that is so, you know, if they're using AI you as an organization better make sure that you have some serious chops that have you know AI and the security software that you're looking at. Uh, I think uh, about another guest that we had where we were talking about um, artificial intelligence and, and I shared a story, which I'll get slightly wrong, but a very, very long time for humans to create a computer that could beat the best chess player. Mm. When that happened, it became you know, newsworthy that, that uh, mm -hmm. the great chess player was beat by the computer. And then evolution continued on the computer side and to the point now where computers, they always beat humans now, basically. And um, somebody, I, I, again, this is where I got the facts is slightly wrong, but the, the general gist of this is accurate. And that is that some researchers trained a computer with uh, AI playing chess. And within a very, very short time, I forget what it was, a few weeks, I think it was in that order of magnitude, the AI models cannot be beaten. The only thing that can happen is, you know, ties. So to your point, the fact that if, if one side of the equation is using artificial intelligence to attack another side, unless you have artificial intelligence to help you, it's only a matter of time until you will be defeated, right? I, I, I agree with you completely that both sides will, will use artificial intelligence and, and, you know, detecting anomalies, making sure that's happened. But for sure, there's way more hype out there today than reality. We, we are still very early in this process with artificial intelligence. And we have a lot more to go. But there is a fertile ground of research and work that can happen and will happen. I think there's there's big AI and little AI, right? So you know, if you if you um, relate AI to a human, you know, AI is like beyond toddler stage, maybe going towards teenager stage, right? And and the reason that that's important is I think we spent a lot of years getting 
AI was a child for a long time, right? Now I think AI is becoming much more sophisticated. But as an organization, sometimes I think we get hung up on like how advanced the AI has to be as opposed to looking for ways that AI can be like really, truly meaningful today without being like uh, super like you're at the end of the strategy. So let me give you an example. You know, one of the things we talked about a lot is using AI just to figure out if you have been breached, if there's some activity that's going on currently within, you know, if somebody's just lying in wait for the perfect data or to set up the perfect attack. You know, there were statistics that that took nine months to a year for a lot of organizations to figure out on their own. And if you can put in an AI solution and figure that out in a matter of weeks, that's a huge win because they don't know that you've done that. You can actually work on scrubbing that leak out of your system. And I I think that's very super powerful. And when I say this, I I don't want to demean like the sophistication of the AI. That's still a very sophisticated AI that does that. But sometimes I think we get wrapped up in the all the way over there and the massive mega deep learning and all the stuff we can't do when we have some really great things that, you know, probably every organization could benefit from today. And that's what excites me about AI is that, you know, that that's something that you can really sink your teeth into and have some value today. I know, you know, Maribel, you work with a number of Fortune 30 companies. So I would love to hear your insight into how are they convincing the board uh, or the CEO or their peers that cybersecurity is something worth investing in? And, and are they having luck? So if you look at some of the reports of how long certain companies, large companies have been down, Uh, as a result of something. And then you say, okay, let's take this in our company. And if we were down for four days, how much money would we lose in four days? Then you look at another um, metric would be say, okay, let's say we're going to lose a lot of customer data as a result of this. Well, let's look at who's been fined for customer data and how much that could be. So a lot of times showing a monetary output is something that people are really interested in. If you're talking to the CMO, that could be like an interesting discussion though, because there's money, but there's also brand reputation. So then then it's examples of what happens to brands when they lose a bunch of data. Like, do they lose customers? Do they lose revenue? Do they have to spend a lot more money to actually get themselves back to the same place they were? Did they have to do a lot of advertising? Did they have to do donations, right? Honestly, you're going to go and at some point and you're going to say, we need the blah, blah, insert the newest, most whiz bang security technology name here, right? And then somebody's going to look back at you and say, but haven't we bought enough security widgets, right? Shouldn't we be protected by now? Why do we need to buy this extra thing? And there's a couple of reasons you need to buy the extra thing technically, but typically they don't understand the technical elements, but they will very much understand that. You know, when somebody comes to you and says, hey, are we secure? That, that, that's a question that nobody can really answer, truthfully. <laughs> but it is a question that is legitimately asked to every senior business executive at some point in their career. And they want to be able to say that they did the things that they thought would make them secure. You can't predict everything. So the question is, how many of those are there? So I think that the people that are listening to this have to say, okay, talk in their terms about what is the risk? 
X type of customer data might be at risk or a Y amount of dollars might be at risk or the brand reputation of the company because we've lost X, Y, Z or there could be serious safety uh, ramifications depending on the type of company it is. So I think we have to turn around instead of telling them that you need XYZ technology to say, you know, we've discovered there's some vulnerabilities and we think that as a result of this, this could be the impact to the company. Yeah. I would just add that the, the advice that I would give is start first with the problem you're solving as opposed to a technology first implementation or argument. When you're talking to uh, you know, your peers, to decision makers within your company, or eventually even to customers, you need to first bring them into the world of what is the problem? And you as the designer or the developer or whatever need to make them care about that problem. And if they don't care about the problem, they're not going to care about your solution. So first start with the problem. And then from there, once you have a great understanding of what problem really matters, then develop a technical solution to solve that problem. And I see people way too often flip that around. They start with a technology and they look for a problem to solve with their technology. Well, and, and most business executives don't understand the technology. They don't understand the nuances of the technology. So in absence of them understanding the nuances of the technology, you have to just tell them, you know, why it matters at the end, right? <laughs> What's exactly. at stake for you? How is it going to impact your job? Exactly. Well, so Maribel, thank you so much for the conversation so far. But as I mentioned before to our audience, we have the last segment of our podcast. We always end in a segment called Fun Facts. Uh, we share some useless piece of information or trivia. And sometimes it's useful, sometimes it's useful. We'll see. But I thought I would turn it over to you first with what is your fun fact you'd like to share? Okay. So I recently moved to South Carolina and I was reading an article the other day. And it was that according to the Columbia State, South Carolina actually produced more tons of peaches than Georgia which is a big deal since Georgia is the peach state. So that's my fun fact. She's thems as fighting words. I know, I know. And I'm guessing, you know, I'm guessing if somebody wanted to have bragging rights for a year and I got a super chuckle out of it, so. (laughs) That's right. Little things matter to people for sure. Mm -hmm. All right, so Camille, what what is your fun fact? Yeah, I got to tell you, I, I... my experience this weekend was amazing because I actually went mushroom hunting in the coastal mountain range in Oregon and went out with somebody who has done it a lot and another person who's done it kind of her whole life, sort of. But they were like, you know, we may very well not get anything, but there's been a lot of rain and the right amount of sun and this and that. So we drove up into the mountains and hundreds of chanterelles later, it was like incredible. I couldn't believe it. You know, my takeaway was there's hundreds within an acre. So I was trying to figure out how common that was. And I did find out that there's anywhere between zero and some sources say 250 and other sources say 450 actual mushrooms in an acre. So you can come on zero or you can come on 450 mushrooms in an acre. Clearly, you're going to cover a lot of ground. Chanterelles don't grow on any kind of medium that you try to do 
uh, and a commercial growing facility. So they have to be picked wild. And they're usually in Douglas fir or hemlock forests. And they're often under salal, and which is a, a vegetation, kind of a low brush. And they're also often kind of by the side of the road where the drainage is washing away. So if you want to get out and look for some, go have fun. It was really spectacular experience to be in a dripping forest seeing these little golden sunshine spots. Great. That's great. I'm going to stick in the Oregon uh, mountains as well. Unfortunately, this story has a, a, has a sad ending. I did not know that in World War II, there were actually civilian casualties on continental United States. And in fact, those civilian casualties were in the mountains of Oregon, in Gearhart Mountain, Oregon. And those casualties were from balloon bombs that were launched from Japan. The idea was that these bombs would float over the continental U.S. Some of them made as far east as Iowa. Uh, The U.S. military got most of them. But in this particular case, there was a family of six, five children, that happened to come across one of these balloon bombs that had come down and they, uh, they triggered it. And they were the only civilian casualties in World War II on the continental U.S. That is uh, dark, so Tom. It's <laughs> on that rousing note, dark. I think I'm going to have to go. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, but I, I, yeah, I, I, I didn't know. I wouldn't call that a fun fact, but it is, I guess, interesting uh, that there was that tactic in the war. But with that, let's close out this podcast. I thank uh, Maribel again for joining and we thank all of our audience, our live audience. We made it through. There was no cursing. It was great. And uh, we welcome you to view our, our podcast online, Cybersecurity Inside Podcast. And we look forward to having you join us there. And thanks for joining today. Take care, everyone. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Moorhart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.